Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Russell Kent. He's the author of JFK Medical Betrayal. And I got to ask, man, you, you you picked another topic to write about. that. You, it's a book that's going to be coming out soon. Um, not soon, next year. And you could have picked any other topic, a lighter topic, because the JFK stuff can already get you lost in so many areas, and it's a very serious historical subject. But you wanted to talk about the war crime trials and everything like that, which to me, how'd you even get, did you have a fascination for it already? Uh, yeah, I've, I've always been interested, um, but there was a connection um, and it's a, it's kind of a tenuous connection, but there is a connection. Uh, when I wrote the JFK book, I was, um, I also spent some time looking at who should have been um, reviewing the autopsy evidence. So there are forensic pathologists in many other countries, apart from the US, of course, um, and some of the best are in the UK. And it turns out that there's one um, university hospital here in, in London called Guy's, um, which could supply could have supplied forensic pathologists to any of the reviews of the JFK medical evidence. Uh, one of the pathologists was a guy called Keith Mant, Dr. Keith Mant. Um, and I, I just started looking at his background. And, and one of the first things that he did as a, a forensic pathologist was um, help with the identification of bodies that were recovered in uh, the European theater after the Second World War. And he was responsible for uh, exhuming the bodies and trying to find out the cause of death, particularly of uh, downed allied airmen. So US, Canadian, uh, American, Australian, all the other nations that fought together against the, the Axis. Um, if they found a body um, buried uh, somewhere they 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 disinterred it and they they tried to find out how that person had been killed and a lot of the times they'd been murdered and so this one pathologist did did a lot of work there uh, he did some work in some of the concentration camps as well on victims there and i thought well you know he did all this work i wonder if it figures in the trials because this is physical evidence um physical evidence would also include things like weapons and uh, bullets and uh, but a body is part of the physical evidence. So I start, I just had a look at a few trials that um, I could find online and um, was really surprised to find that hardly any physical evidence is used in the trial at all. It's mostly eyewitness evidence and, and circumstantial evidence. And that that intrigued me. I thought, I thought well, you know, could this really be uh, strong enough to convict people? So I started to look at more and more trials, only to discover that there were thousands of trials and something I really didn't know. Um, and I, I don't think a lot of people know. I think I only There's... knew about maybe three or four trials that uh, potentially, but using eyewitnesses, I mean, I think we all know from the JFK stuff that eyewitnesses aren't really reliable in many certain instances with their memories, that they use that as evidence against the people that they were prosecuting at the trials. Exactly. So, you know, you want to really be looking the, the first trial I looked at was uh, the Belson trial. Um, and I'm I'm skipping ahead a little bit and I'll come back in a minute. But um, just to look at how many eyewitness eyewitnesses were used and what I was looking for was corroborating evidence. So not just one eyewitness saying this German guard shot this person, but corroborating evidence from uh, two or more. Um, 
because if you're going to use eyewitness evidence, it's it's got to be more than one eyewitness saying the same thing, in my opinion. And certainly, you know, the the standard in law is it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And if it's only one person, you know, it could be reasonable doubt, I think. And not always. Obviously, that's a sweeping statement. But let me come back to the number of trials, because most people just think about one trial. Most people will say to you when you say World War II war crimes trials, they'll say Nuremberg. And you say, yes, there was a big one in Nuremberg. It's called the International Military Tribunal, or IMT for short. And that was a big one where um, the allies, the four allied nations who occupied Germany after the war, um, the US, the USSR, the Soviet Union, the UK and France decided that they would try the top Nazis together as a team. And that was the main trial in Nuremberg and lasted nearly a year uh, from November 1945 until October 1946. And um, they tried, they actually indicted, I think it was 24 people. They didn't try 24 because they couldn't find them all. Um, and I think they ended up trying 21. There was a, a, a big trial and, and most people just know about that one trial. But there was, you know, a handful of people um, and not one of those people was a commandant at a concentration camp or a guard or someone who'd shot down someone who was parachuting from one of their airplanes or a slave laborer or a child. Not one of them. They were all the top Nazis who'd committed crimes, if you like, without a geographical boundary. So they'd been responsible for the whole damn thing. Um, so that was the, that was the major trial. But then um, the, the four powers wanted to do more trials, more of these international military tribunals, which they could all agree on. Um, let, let's try the, the top, uh, top people from the army, navy and the air force. Let's try the top judges, the Nazi judges. Let's try the industrialists. This was kind of agreed that the, the, these international trials would continue. But it all broke down because um, US and the UK particularly started to really distrust the Russians. And so we couldn't really get into another trial with them. And, and let's face it, we already knew that the Russians committed war crimes trials themselves. Um, Katyn Forest, for instance, would be an example that your listeners couldn't look up. But um, so, the, so these international trials broke down. They weren't anymore. There was only one. And that left the individual occupying powers, the, the Russians, the Americans, the, the British and the French, to try people in their own zone. So the people that they'd captured in their part of Germany and had interred, they then went on to try them. And, and the it was the US that started those trials in their own zone. And they ran uh, a lot of trials in Dachau, the former concentration camp, which they took over because that's where they could hold the trials, there was a big enough area to hold the trials, and they could uh, imprison the people they wanted to try. A lot of trials at Dachau by the Americans. Then the Americans did some subsequent trials in Nuremberg, 12 subsequent trials there. So there's a whole bunch of American trials to get your teeth into. But that wasn't what I wanted to look at. I wanted to look at the British trials. Would you believe there were trials in the Soviet Union, France, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, um, Poland, all over Europe, Italy, there were trials. 
that the British trials were all held in the British zone, which was northwest Germany, uh, in many towns there. And there were over 300 trials. Uh, but most of them were held in one place in Hamburg, in a place called the Curio House. And that's really sparked my interest that this, this one place could hold over 100 trials. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll just get on a plane. Hamburg's not so far away from here. I speak German. I lived in Germany for five years. I've worked there uh, subsequently for a couple of years. So I'll just go to Hamburg and I'll go to the Curio House and let's have a look. And it is now what it was before the war. It's a big concert house. They have um, classical and uh, other music concerts there and they have dance, they have theater. And that's what they did before the war. Um, after the bombing of Hamburg by, by the British, there, there wasn't much left standing in Hamburg, um, but this, this place was, and it was intact, and they decided that it was good enough to use as not just one courtroom, but I think they had five courtrooms there, so they could do they could hold more than one trial at the same time. And they had uh, hotels nearby, which were more or less intact, where the, uh, the various judges and uh, prosecution and defense counsel could um, stay while the, while, the, um, while the trials were proceeding. And they had an another thing that came up that was completely new to me. The people that they wanted to try, they kept them in civilian internment camps. And one of the biggest was also in Hamburg at a for former concentration camp called Neuengamme. I'd never heard of Neuengamme. I don't think many of your I listeners think I can say it. Yeah, it's not easy to say. That's true. Um, but Neuengamme, um, about 40,000 people went through it and you know, tens of thousands of people died there. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to the Curia House. I'll, I'll visit Neuengamme. And the, the German authorities have done an excellent job at Neuengamme of preserving it. And they've got a fantastic archive there. They managed to rescue a lot of the records before they were burnt by the SS. So they've got records of every prisoner that went through the camp. Uh, a wonderful library. And I just got in touch with the director of the archive. And he said, sure, come, come on by. And... He gave me a lot of time and he gave me free access to their archive, which was remarkable. And um, I have to say that the, the, the Germans have been, German people have been so kind and so open to me. Um, so I spent a lot of time at the archive in Neuengamme. And then I, I went to some other places in Hamburg where some of the war crimes uh, actually occurred. Um, and again, some of those have got uh, small museums and uh, memorials. And the people who ran those were equally open and kind and provided me with uh, lots of information. And so then I got down to writing the book. Could I ask about the German, um, them being so open to showing you some of the archive material? Was that shocking to you? I mean, obviously, it's not we're not talking about all of Germany that was involved in these horrible atrocities. We're talking about specific people. But I, it's still it's like it's, it's a dark part of history a little bit. You would feel like. Some areas would kind of steer away from you than just having the discussion about it or giving access to materials that would be, you know, more revealing for someone that's willing to pursue educational knowledge and understanding the historical accuracy or just the events of the scenario. It's certainly, I think there was a time uh, immediately after the war, so uh, between 1945 and maybe 1965, when um, Germany wanted to hide that stuff, and you can you can see why. Uh, and they wanted to become allies of the West, uh, and therefore they wanted to hide some of the, that dark past. But um, 
in the 1960s, the, the children of the, the people who'd been involved wanted to know more about what their what their fathers and, and their mums had done. And they started to demand more openness. And so through the 60s and uh, into the 70s, that that became open and more and more memorials were set up and, and concentration camps that had kind of fallen into ruin or had been taken over as prisons or sometimes had been taken over as military barracks were then um, converted by the people into memorials, proper memorials and um, museums and open to the public. And they they gathered more and more materials and they invited for, former inmates to come back and bring with them what anything they'd got and share their memories. And um, the, the Germans just became more and more open to admitting and discussing their past. And now we have, you know, my generation, which is my grandparents were in the war, uh, your generation, your great grandparents were probably in the war. So we, we're now generations away from it sufficiently that they can be completely open about it and look at that period of their history as uh, an academic exercise rather than something that might be emotional. Um, and I just find them to be remarkably open about it uh, in, in a way that uh, surprises me sometimes. How was the British trials different from the like U.S. trials, for instance, or any other um, Axis powers that was doing trials? Yeah, 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 yeah. Great question because um, the what tended to happen was that the the allies in each zone tried according to their own laws. So the um, the British and the American way is adversarial, in which we have a. And a prosecuting counsel who presents the case for the prosecution and a defense counsel that defends and they argue their case uh, backwards and forwards um, to a judge or a judging panel or a jury of course um, and then it's up to the jury or the judge to make up their mind which side has won if you like but that's not the way the French do it um, the French do it in a completely different way where the, the judge makes a report and there is no arguing back and forth and the Russians, of course, um, particularly at that time, <laughs> you were guilty and you had to say, prove yourself innocent and um, good luck doing that because that probably wasn't going to happen. So they were show trials. Um, but for the British, they decided that they couldn't just use uh, British law because British law can't really. I think it was difficult to say that it, it could apply to Germany, even though it was occupied and being occupied, it was subject to British law they decided that they needed uh, a royal warrant. So something um, that's put in the king's name at the time to say that they could try these people. And they had to do it in a military court because the only people that were there on the ground immediately after the war were the military. So, you know, we, we weren't having uh, civilian, uh, you call them lawyers, we call them solicitors and barristers out there. Call them the devil. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know the kind. But so we decided we'd use military military law based on a royal warrant. And it, it, they were more or less like uh, court-martial. So you don't have a jury in a court-martial. You have a judge. You have a presiding judge and a panel of uh, sort of senior people in the military. You still have a prosecutor, usually assigned by the judge advocate general, who is the um, it's the office of the judge advocate general. They're the legal office of the army. You also have one in the States, uh, Judge Advocate General. And defense was usually 
um, for the first first few trials, they they asked British barristers and British lawyers to um, to defend these uh, these people who've been accused of these horrible crimes. But later on, um, people were less and less willing to do that, and uh, German lawyers were chosen to defend their own uh, their own people. So that the court would be set up with a, a judge and a panel of um, members, they called them, with a prosecuting barrister often appointed by the army and a defence. A defence um, could be a barrister, might be a lawyer from Germany to defend the person accused. Um, and then they would come into the into the courthouse in the Curia House and, and try them. And the Curia House had, I think I said, over 100 trials. Um, but that's now it started. It started uh, before the, uh, even before the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg. The U.S. started their trials in Dachau in, I think, in August 1945, and the Nuremberg trial didn't start in November. And the British started to try people for um, Belsen, the concentration camp Belsen, which I, you can uh, help me here, Robbie, because I don't think that's so well known in the states, is it? The word Belsen. No, it's um, it's very well known in the UK because it was the the first major camp that the British liberated, uh, and it was it wasn't um, a camp like Auschwitz where people were taken to to be worked to death or to be gassed. Um, Belsen was a transit camp, um, and towards the end of the the war, it was used to concentrate people that the the Nazis thought that they could use for uh, exchange. So, you know, we'll let all these people go if you'll stop bombing this city or something like that. Um, but more and more people started to get crammed into it. And a camp that should should have held no more than 10,000 people ended up, you know, with four or five times as many people in it. And uh, the conditions were awful. Uh, there was there was no food. There was no the water got cut off um, and terrible diseases and you know, tens of thousands of people died. And when the British liberated it, there were thousands of bodies everywhere over the camp and it, and it made a big impression on britain at the time because as we liberated we filmed it and those films got um put onto the newsreels here for people to see um so the belson trial started um in uh, sort of late summer 1945 um and he even here if you say to people the belson trial that they're just amazed that there was a Belson trial, but there were actually three Belson trials, not just one. Another camp we liberated, the Neuengamme camp in Hamburg, there were nine trials for uh, atrocities in Nuremberg. And um, a third concentration camp, Ravensbrück, which you may not have heard of either, was uh, specifically a women's camp just outside Berlin. All the people for that were tried well, a lot of the people for that were tried by the British, seven different trials. Um, you, they would have been tried in in the Russian zone because that's where Ravensbrück was after the war. But um, we held all the criminals. We got them all in custody, so then we weren't going to send them back to the Russians. We wanted to try them properly. Did you um, see their evolution so through the trials from the first one compared to the last one? Did they start having more of a different mindset or... Because I, I know with the U.S. government, I think it was Winston, I'm not, I don't want to say Churchill, might have been Churchill, 
the whole designation for the trials in the first place. But I, I thought at first he just wanted to just persecute him, just straight up, you know, execute him, that whole style of thing. I didn't know if that was the British government, from what you could tell, if that was their mindset at the beginning, or were they actually willing to conduct an actual investigation and trying to see what's right and wrong in some of these trials? I would have to think at the end of it, you kind of know the basis. You've heard so much of the atrocities already compared to what you're looking at in your trials. But I would have to just think you'd just be like, yep, hurry up, hit the gavel, say guilty, and let's move on to the yeah. next one. Let's get this out of the way. Well, certainly, if you move to um, during the war, there was um, a lot of talk about, well, what are we going to do with uh, war criminals? Because, you know, the reports were coming through that terrible things were happening in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe. And uh, we realized that the British and the Americans, uh, to a lesser degree, the, the French, because they were occupied, and the Soviets, that we're going to have to do something about a lot of people that had uh, committed these terrible crimes. Um, unfortunately, we, we'd done a poor job of it the, in the previous war, the First World War. Um, we wanted to try people in for war crimes after the First World War, but uh, and the Germans wouldn't give us give them to us and we couldn't conceive of holding war crimes trials there because we didn't occupy Germany after the first world war so um what ended up in the first world war is that you know a handful of people were tried by the Germans themselves and they would enter the courtroom to cheers and get very minor sentences and those that were sentenced often were um helped to escape jail if you like um so a terrible hash of it in the first world war and everybody realized we couldn't do that again so uh, Churchill said, well, you know, we'll just have to shoot them. You know, just get an officer to identify them, take them outside, shoot them. Let's not be messing about with this. Um, and broadly, uh, the Americans, Roosevelt, agreed. And it was uh, it was actually Stalin who said, no, we should try them, because he envisaged his kind of trial, uh, which was a 1930s kind of show trials. Um Kind of like and the mafia it, trials during the whole RFK thing, or no, it was in Italy. There was um, they had the mafia in there, and the courthouses all in cages, like they were animals in the middle of the courtroom. They're all smoking cigarettes and throwing boxes at each other and stuff. It was a show trial. It wasn't real. That's right. Uh, but if, I think eventually the Americans uh, particularly realized that you know we we had to we had to show that we were better than this and that, that we. We, there was no point fighting for liberation and for our values if we didn't then apply them to the to the people that we'd we'd uh, been victorious over and so we had to have trials and it had to be proper and it had to be based on law and so that they began to conceive of how how could we how could we put this together how could we try people um and and they they try they decided to try on four different bases so they were going to try people for Crimes against peace, which was uh, making aggressive war, if you like. Uh, crimes against uh, humanity, which was um, well, you can imagine what that what that means. It's it's crimes against local populations and civilians, particularly. Then there were war crimes, so uh, crimes against the um, the normal usages and methods of war. I'll come back to that a bit if you like. And then there was the conspiracy to do all of those things, um, so that. Uh, certainly at the Nuremberg trial, the idea was that these this group of 20-odd people had conspired together to launch a war, a world war, and to dominate and then to uh, enslave people and make the, everybody conform to their view of the world. 
so that that conspiracy case was important because uh it, it, it bound everybody together and it also made it possible to say that individual um I'm looking for the word now. Uh, individual groups like the SS and the Gestapo could be criminal groups themselves. So that if you were a member of that group, you were automatically a criminal, whether you'd done anything um, individually that could be proved or not. You were a criminal because you were a member of the SS who had conspired to do these horrible things. So it was kind of an, a, an important thing. Well, it's a difficult question. I mean, if you look at like the Nazis and I've had people on my show talk about it before and it's so hard and they always have to rationalize like I'm not defending the Nazis here, but not everybody was a willing participant in being a Nazi. You know, some of them were either felt like they were forced or they were put in a position where they had no choice. And it's then becomes like you're trying to rationalize people's involvement. And it was like, I mean, we do have a large history of just kind of painting the broad brush and putting everybody under the scoop, which I mean, as a nation, if you're looking at condemning people for war crimes or crimes against humanity or anything of that sort, if they were involved in it, you're already looking at like, well, this is what we're doing for all the rest of them. We might as well go through. But I mean, has your perspective changed on any of these nations for the good or for the worse? I mean, on how they handled some of the trials and some of the ways they participated in some of those activities, because if you watch some of them, they're very eye-opening compared to what you might be reading in some archival data so i'm also curious if some of those footage that you might have watched enhance your perspective or change any thoughts that you had based on what you were reading and coming across from the archives sure so a, a very uh long perceptive question perceptive though because uh yeah you're right a lot of people were forced to join the party some people were even forced to join the ss and that that certainly came through in some of the british trials when the defendant would say, well, you know, I I didn't join the party um, or I had to join the party because if I if I was a doctor, I, could, I wouldn't get any patients if I wasn't a member of the party. Uh, but some people, I was looking at uh, one person this this uh, week who was a guard in a, in a sub camp of Neuengamme uh, where people were forced to work in a dockyard. Was it a dockyard? Uh, they were forced to work. Some women were forced to work anyway, not not a dockyard. They were building work. That's right. And um, she was not a member of the party, not even a member of the the equivalent of the Hitler Youth for Women was called the Do uh, Bund Deutsche Mädchen or Bund Deutsche Mädel, BDM. She wasn't a member of that. And she was forced to join the SS to become a guard at this camp. So uh, she didn't really want to be, but. She was 23 and she went to be a guard at this camp. Now, she didn't behave very well at the camp. Um, she certainly um, was was violent, um, but she she fell in love with somebody there. She fell in love with another woman there. And her story is absolutely remarkable. She this this woman she fell in love with when the camp was evacuated, they were all taken to to Belson, which I mentioned earlier. And um she was the guard to, to transport these people to Belson. And when she got there, she asked the commandant, well, can I come in as well? Because, you know, I want to speak to this woman. Um, she couldn't reveal that she was in love with her, of course. And the, and the commandant said, no, off you go. So she, she went all the way back to Hamburg, which is, uh, you know, over a hundred kilometers away. And her heart was so inflamed. She got on her bike and she actually cycled back to Belson. She put on some prisoners clothes and snuck into the camp to be with this woman 
So it was that that degree of um, compulsion to do things, she was compelled to become a guard and join the SS, and her own uh, inner compulsion to be with the woman she loved made her become a prisoner in a camp. Yeah, so absolutely remarkable story which i had not come across before of course it's in the book um i want to go back to a question you asked me earlier about whether there was a development uh, through the trials whether there was precedent set which of course is what we do in 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 uh, in law in both the us and the uk uh, we set precedent and then particularly in higher courts uh, the lower courts take the precedent that's been set in the higher court so the high court says that um for manslaughter, the minimum term in prison is 10 years, then a lower court finding someone guilty of manslaughter will not sentence them to less than 10 years. Those are the kind of precedents that get built upon, but you can only build upon them if you record those, those different uh, judges' decisions. And we record them over here in our law reports, and I'm sure you do over there as well, so that they can be looked up by barristers and solicitors and lawyers and they can properly advise their clients. They didn't do that with the war crimes trials, certainly not the U the UK ones, the British ones. Um, the British ones, I wouldn't say it was chaotic, but if you wanted to try somebody, we had to find them first and, and make sure we had them in custody. Then we had to convene a court. And, and it wasn't very easy during the war and immediately after the war to convene a court because people were being uh, demobilized. They were coming out of uniform and going home everybody wanted to go home of course so you know trying to find a, um, a panel of judges and trying to find barristers and defense lawyers and and all the other people that were involved guards and people to look after the cloakrooms and people to check people into hotels and do all their itineraries it, it was hellish difficult to do so they um it was kind of done on an ad hoc basis and I contacted the Judge Advocate General's uh, office here in, in the UK and said, you know, how was it decided who would be a judge and who would be a president? And um, where, where are the records for that? And they said, well, we, we just don't have any records. Uh, anything we have is in the National Archives, which is in London here. Um, and really, the only records there seem to be the trial records. There doesn't seem to be any any um, reason why this court was convened on this day uh, and consisting of these people. And so with that degree of chaos, if you like, there certainly wasn't a record made so that the next trial could refer to the the um, judge's comments from the previous trial because it, it just wasn't written down anywhere. Is that because of ethics or do you think that they might have been doing some of the things a little bit off the books for a purpose? Like it doesn't have to be nefarious, but obviously you're handling a very difficult situation. Um, and I don't I mean, I don't know how much Operation Paperclip, just the same method, I'm not saying it was relatable, but I'm just saying that there's a certain amount of information that was accepted and kind of forgiven for what was gone because it was good for research purposes, which is not ethical at all, but it's not something that they necessarily wanted to write down and record. I mean, a lot of information probably was lost because of the fact either documentation was destroyed, lost, we don't know. But if you get down to doing an actual trial proceeding and you want to keep the professionalism of, of a nation to have the courage to be able to do so and show people that you this is what you do to people in an ethical, standard, legal precedent, this is how you handle this situation, as bad as it might be. But also at the same time, there might be some ways you have to get information or make something stick 
in the sense that, you know, some of the evidence that might have been used might not have been something that would be set in a normal legal precedent, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, again, perceptive, because, um, uh, and I'll come to paperclip, remind me of paperclip, but uh, if I don't come to if it. Perceptive is a compliment, good, because every time I see a penny on heads, I pick it up. <laughs> good man, right. <laughs> so uh, the British just wanted to crack through the trials. We wanted to get as many done as quickly as possible. And there were lots of reasons for that. Uh, there was the fact that we wanted the Germans to become allies was not... Um, it's not a good sign if you're um, trying hundreds and hundreds of people for war crimes, particularly uh, people who are in their forces, when you want them to be on your side. So that that was one reason. A second reason was there was pressure from Germany as it became a democracy to stop doing these trials. And the third reason was that people were just fed up with it, particularly in the press over here. Uh, once the, the Nuremberg trial kind of started the the rot if you like because the Nuremberg trial was a trial by document so thousands of documents were read into evidence so day after day the prosecutors would read documents to the court there were no witnesses and and it wasn't until halfway through when they when the penny dropped that this was so dry that the judges were getting bored they certainly weren't reporting on it back in the press that they started to interview witnesses and show a film and um, try to make it a, a little bit more interesting. Um, they weren't trying to make it more interesting, but they were trying to do um, admit evidence in a different way, if you like, rather than documents. Well, the British press, and I can't speak for the US press, but I imagine it was the same, we just switched off. After the beginning of the Nuremberg trial, there was nothing in the British press until the actual um, until they were sentenced. Uh, the sentencing got a load of press, and then that was it. There was hardly any mention of a war crimes trial in the UK, apart from the Belson trial, or if there was a trial of a woman, and it was kind of used as a titillation in the British press, which is enormously embarrassing. But you know, it's just one of the things our press does. And they became much more interested in problems with the empire because India were becoming independent and uh, homegrown murders and crimes. And the war crimes trials just dropped out of the press completely. So not not only was it not a good thing to do politically or um, in, in a world unity sense, it also wasn't very interesting to the British. So the politicians lost interest as well. Um, and it turned out that we'd got a lot of people to try. We had 20,000 people in custody and it had taken two months to do the first Belson trial of 44 people. And somebody worked out it was going to take decades to try them all at this rate. So we just couldn't, just couldn't do it. So they started to look at how could we make this, this elephant much smaller so that we can get through it and say, we've, we've done something for justice. And they decided to have 500 trials maximum of 500 trials and even that was whittled away and you you can read all about that in the book how that was there weren't 500 trials there were less than 400 um and it eventually got whittled down and a, a lot of people just were let loose um the british and the americans tried a process called denazification which you may have heard of um which involved interviewing everybody to see what degree of nazi they might have been uh, and then filling in a form to say whether they'd been a member of the party or the Hitler Youth or the Bund, 
Deutsche Mädel or uh, the SS, you know. If you were in the SS, you were automatically put into a camp ready for trial. But a lot of other people, low-level people who'd been Nazis, um, and, and nearly all the people who'd run the government, who'd been in the judiciary, who'd been in education, who'd been in medicine, they were nearly all, to some degree, associated with the Nazi party. And so we, we couldn't just arrest all of these people or limit them in some way because we we still needed the, the schools to be open. We still needed the local government to run. We still needed the courts to run. And so we handed over the process of denazification to the Germans themselves who did lip service to it and then stopped doing it. Uh, so you you think know, that a happened? lot of people got away. Do you think that happened because it's kind of like a gray area? It is something that obviously didn't happen on our soil. It was something that happened somewhere else or it might affect the population or whatever you want to say that might not be the one who might be observing it. So it wasn't entertaining for the public. And maybe that's why the press kind of just stopped and dropped out of it as well, too. I mean, you have to look at like it's it being a gray area. It does question our ethics when it comes to following and mandating the law and doing it in the right to a fair trial, that whole, you know, process. And if you're just going to end up putting people in categories, depending on what, how high up they were in the rankings or something of that sort. I mean, people aren't really going to focus that much into it because they're like, oh, that's still going on because it's the whole gray area aspect. I mean, it really questions when our legal system or our legal system, your legal system is actually to the length of how far it extends. Is that the gray area that we talk about? Just people just lose interest. I mean, how many times have you seen, or did you see Milosevic, the uh, the guy from Serbia, mentioned in your newspapers? He Not didn't at all. Pop up in ours very often either. <laughs> I was about to know? say with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard one was trending for like months. Yeah. Yeah, of course it was. But Milosevic was tried in the Hague for months, you know, and it very rarely made the papers. Um, so it's the same now as it was then. Um, people just lost interest. Uh, they just wanted to get on with their lives. Uh, it was much more important where the next I mean, food was rationed here till 1955. So, you know, it was much more important. Where was the next dinner coming from? Where was the next load of coal coming from to keep warm in the terrible winters there in the 1940s than, than what, uh, you know, a young woman had done in, in a camp to some Czechoslovakian slaves? You know, they just weren't interested. Did any of the morals of the nation, depending on where they were doing their trials at, let's take the UK, for instance, if they were doing their trials, do you think their morals and this, the way they think about things might have played an effect in what they guess the end call for someone's trial, whether they were guilty, whether there was a lighter sentence? Because like, for instance, the French, they think about sex scandals differently than we do in the U.S. To us, if a Bill Clinton thing, it's still a joke today. But to the French, they're like, why are you guys even talking about that? It's nothing. So I'm wondering with their trials, I mean, you could probably look at the U.S. and other places and see that. There might have been a certain case of, in your perspective, since where you live, you might be like, that should have been a guilty charge right there. But for us, it might be seen differently because of the fact that we just don't have that connection or that stigma to it. Uh, it's kind of almost the opposite in my in my research, in that I find a lot of people who have been found guilty on very slender evidence, which you, you would think, wow, you know, how did how did this get by a judging panel? beyond reasonable doubt, which is our standard for finding somebody guilty. Um, and a good example of that was the 
Zyklon B trial, which you may not have heard of Zyklon B. Zyklon B was the gas that was used to uh, kill uh, 4 million Jews aghast in, in various concentration camps. And it was supplied by a company in, in Hamburg. And the trial of the directors who supplied the gas was in the Curio House. Um, so, you know, this is a massive trial that hardly anybody's heard about, Zyklon B trial. Um, and yet the evidence was very slim against these guys, these directors. And, and it came down to an ex-employee had seen a, a report from one of the directors saying that um, the, the gas was being used to, to kill people and not just vermin, uh, rats and uh, mice, and uh, who it was designed to kill, uh, that it was designed to kill animals, not, not people. Uh, and this director knew about it and there was a report and so, you know, the, the British investigator said, well, show me a copy of the report. He said, I haven't got a copy of it. I, I, I made a note of it. And he said, well, show me the note. Then he said, well, I haven't got the note either. I showed it to one of my friends. And my friend said, this is very dangerous. You better burn it. So he burnt the note. So there was absolutely no documentary evidence, really, that, um, that the directors knew that it was being supplied for that purpose. And it was a, legit a legitimate thing to supply for the fumigation of clothes, clothing, for instance, which were terribly lice-ridden during the war. Um, the, uh, there was other evidence, but it, it was circumstantial. So there was evidence that um, the SS was the best customer of this company, but then they might have been fumigating uniforms with it. And there was evidence that um, Auschwitz was sent tons of the material during one year and you know the prosecution pointed out that this was an unusual amount and hadn't that figured and the directors realized that you know hey our biggest customer is the ss and the most stuff we're we're shipping tons of the stuff to this concentration camp so you know what's it being used for um and the, the directors absolutely denied that they knew anything about it and yet they were found guilty and they were hanged Oh my God. I just, I don't, I know I'm not there either, but I'm just saying, I do not want to be put in that position to, to hit that one down. Cause I'm like, look, there are some, I bet you, you could track their lives afterwards. If you just told them, Hey, your gas for your company might've actually been used to kill a large amount of people and just stare at him and see is one staring at the floor. Like he's about to jump off a cliff. He probably didn't know, but the other guy who's already on his whatever, radio giving a phone call back home saying he would like this for dinner he probably knew what was going on is it robbie i think they knew i think they knew but the evidence didn't show that they knew that's the that's the point when you when you're in court you have to prove you have to prove the person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and i don't think the proof was there and i've i've seen the records i i went through the records just last week that which are in london and I couldn't find anything that was, you know, incriminating enough that I would be able to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. And I, I have no doubt that they knew. I have no doubt that the gas was supplied by them knowingly. And I have no doubt that all those people were killed. And I'm not a not a denier in any way. I'm, I'm, not a saying, I'm not a denier either. I just, like I said, back to the Nazi thing about, I don't think everybody was a willing participant in some of the activities that were going on. I just try and think of that. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people knew what was going on. At one point you had to hear what was going on or you were involved in some transaction where you knew what was going to happen. But I think a lot of my 
I could draw a line here. A lot of the stuff I learned about like court and what they'll do in court is from the JFK stuff. And if we talk about why some of that stuff is not recorded or it's not properly you know, documented on some of the trial activities is because of the fact that if you have skimp evidence like that, you're going to try and make something stick. And it might not be done in the best procedural or in the ethics of the law. But like I said, it's a gray zone. A lot of people are going to be less willing to want to get near that or try and say you did this wrong because of the fact that the crimes are so horrendous. Yeah. I, mean, I, I would have thought in the Cyclone B case particularly, uh, that would have been a life imprisonment rather than a hanging. Yeah. I, that's I get the I mean, the killing thing, that's a first mindset for everybody. Here's how many people died over a certain usage of something and you design that thing. They're like, all right, well, then you should be dead. Right. I mean, it's a tough question to ask, but I mean, having someone rot in jail. I mean, what are your thoughts? Like how involved was the British government into just locking people up forever compared to just hanging them? Nobody rotted in in jail um, from British trials the the international military tribunal sent um uh, hess was in prison for the rest of his life he died in prison um but the british trials in the british zone nobody went to prison for more than i think most of them were out within two or three years certainly seven seven years even those sentenced to life imprisonment were out within less than 10 years good so behavior by well yeah all, all kinds of reasons the um the first thing that happened was they were they were credited for time that they'd spent on what we'd call on remand, which means waiting for trial. So if we'd arrested them in 1945, we'd not tried them until 1948. That would have been three years knocked off. Um, but actually what happened was the, the British government decided that life imprisonment went, meant, um, then a few years later decided that life imprisonment meant 21 years. Which is not a lie. They then knocked three years off if you'd been in prison for a certain time. They then knocked a third off for good behavior. And so we're already down to like 10 years. And then most of the most of the people who were in prison for that sort of time, they appealed for various reasons. They were ill or their wife was ill or, you know, there's some reason that they, they shouldn't be incarcerated any longer. And most of them, I mean, a lot of them walked after just a couple of months for it, that they'd served for each person that they killed, and including children. I mean, people who'd killed, who'd allowed children to die, hundreds of children to die, would serve just a few years in prison. Well, it's, it's like uh, it's like it's the the leader remarkable. The leader of Unit Seven Thirty One. He ended up dying of like cancer on like a his retirement home. They gave him so much money afterwards, and it was like that dude killed a lot of people. That combined weight of how many J- Japanese ways yeah well in Japan they killed more Chinese than we did with Hiroshima and Nagasaki and it's not talked about at all but those numbers are just it's horrendous with the type of entomological and chemical warfare that they use but that guy just died on his house they just let him retire and you wouldn't even know that your neighbor was this psychopath yeah. these people they got away with it they got away with it and and the thousands and th- hundreds of thousands probably of lower level criminals who didn't kill people but w- mistreated them and abused them who, who totally got away with it totally and and so can you see the fascination you can probably hear it in my voice now as i look at each one of these cases it just reveals to me there's nuances in each of these cases you know something fascinating that we'd not heard about who'd heard about the zyklon b trial before and that was the trial for 
you know, the gassings at Auschwitz, if you like, the people who'd supplied the gas. Who 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 knew about the the baby homes in, in the in Germany? They uh, where a hundred thousand babies died. It's just unbelievable. And the more I look at it, the more material is. And I have to tell you this story. I um I spoke to my editor recently for this this book. It's going to be called uh, "Bringing the Nazis to Justice." But uh, she said to me, it's an 80,000 page book. So, um, you know, you better have a look at where you are with it because we need to get, we need to get started on the editing process. So I thought, oh, I better, I better have a look because 80,000 words, that's a lot of words, right? So I had a look, I got 105,000 words and I've not even finished the book. So I thought, oh my God. So I've got to, I've got to cut, you know, a quarter of the book already. So there was so much material. So I, I, I mean, I don't know what you're the, where you're at in the process right now, but how much, how hard was it for you to choose certain things to cut? Obviously, including some of the stories are really, really important because it just hammers down the weight and gravity of a complete misjustice that really happened when it came to giving or putting these people, you know, for the crimes that they committed away either forever or, but I mean, how difficult was that to just, because you can't touch on every single thing you'd have to, you'd be there for like the Warren Commission volumes of 26 you know, books back to back on trying to discuss it all. So, I mean, did you choose the ones that you felt like really kind of hit the point home or did you felt ones that you had an attachment to? Like the story you mentioned earlier about the woman um, who fell in love with someone yeah. who was in one of these yeah. camps. Yeah, that was a really good one. Um it, it wasn't too difficult because the way I've written the book, each each trial is represented as a, a section in a chapter. So I've divided the book into uh, crimes against certain uh, classes of people. So there'll be um, trials for murderers of uh, prisoners of war, trials for murders of slave laborers, trial trials for uh, deaths of children, those kind of things. And then within those chapters, I've tried to illustrate them with one or two, maybe three or four trial examples when there could be you know and there's a over 100 trials at this one place the curio house um so i can't do 100 trials you're right it'd be in volumes um so i've tried to restrict it by saying that the trial had to be at the curio house and it had to be um something that's important or interesting or illustrates something that is not previously in the historical record um the baby's home thing um never there isn't anything in the english uh, in english literature about it um same for um a, a class of camp called a, a work education camp there's nothing in english about it there is there are a couple of german books nothing in english um with the with the babies the baby homes there was a, a cbs reporter who did an article on it in dan rather some of a bit no it wasn't dan no it wasn't dan <laughs> no uh, i've forgotten her name that's terrible nancy is her first name but i can't remember the rest of her name but she um did a report in the i think it was in the 80s on one of the homes um not on the trial but in on the conditions in the home itself so um there is there is that's the only thing it's the only thing on babies homes um i'm sure you never heard of it there was all the slave workers that were taken to um to Germany from Poland and Russia and many other countries. Uh, of course, half of them were women and they're mostly young women because they needed them as workers. And so what happens when you get young women and young men together as babies come along? Um, but they couldn't be uh, looking after the babies because then they wouldn't be working in the fields and the factories. So the Germans decided to open babies' homes for the children. Um, 
but they weren't too careful about looking after the children and 100,000 of them died. So uh, after the war, there were three trials by the British of people involved in baby homes. They were the only trials, and one of them was in the Curio House. So um, people were made to pay for that, but only in three homes, and there were many hundreds of homes. Why do you think that, obviously, some generations, my generation included, we are largely disconnected from uh, these trials and these crimes against humanity, but why do you think that it's not really in the general public's knowledge? Obviously, you, you probably could get this from a historian, or if you have an interest in it like yourself, you've gathered a lot of information just by reading through material, and I'm very impressed by that. Um, it's kind of like me soaking up the JFK stuff in such a short amount of time, but there is a disconnect and I wonder why that is. And I wouldn't say it's not a lack of interest. I just think there's a lack of willingness to talk about it as well, too. Not only from the actual crimes itself, because they are so horrendous, but you don't hear about this even being taught in the education system. It's much like the JFK thing. You hear about the assassination and then it skips right over to Johnson and the Vietnam War. And it's because there are these lingering questions that are still involved in controversial issues that are involved with the JFK stuff. Is it the same thing with some of these trials? Well, I think um, people are probably more interested in contemporary uh, events because the, the thing I hear every time I someone asks me, what am I doing? I say, I'm writing a book about war crimes trials. They will say, well, what about in the Ukraine? You know, what about Putin? And um, that's what people are interested in, bringing people to... To book now for crimes that are done at the moment because Putin will never be tried because the only reason we managed to try people after the second world war is because we occupied Germany we're not going to occupy Russia so he's never going to be brought to trial um, so I think people are more interested in contemporary things than uh, in history uh, you, you and I are, are rare people to be so interested in history um, a lot of people are not and as, as for teaching in schools, you know, you can't go to the depth that I've gone to. You can mention Nuremberg, uh, the International Military Tribunal, and you can mention that there were many and many other trials by people in the, by the, the occupied powers and in other countries. That's probably as far as you can go teaching about it. And it's it's up to people that are interested in the various various levels and there's a huge interest in the Second World War, certainly of people of my generation, because our, our grandfathers used to tell us about it. Um, there's a huge interest there. And so there's, you know, it was much easier, Robbie, for me to get a publisher for this book than it was for the JFK book. Really? That's that's fascinating. Massively easier. It's kind of in scary, fact, though. I'll, I'll tell you, the first publisher I approached, it was my preferred publisher, I'll give you that. First publisher I approached said yes which is, you know, I was astonished. So you you bat one out of one. Yeah. Okay. Because in the JFK case, I, I, I wrote to over a hundred publishers. That, you know, that's interesting to me. I don't know why. Can I ask you this question? I mean, obviously your government's probably a little bit more secretive despite all the things our government does in secrecy. Um, but obviously you guys handle conspiracies different than the way we handle conspiracies over here. I mean, do you think that, like, I mean, did it shock you looking at all this information and seeing all this stuff that went on? Like, it, it obviously, you had access to archives and material, but, I mean, did you learn anything about your government that I guess you might have su suspected or just anything of the sort that kind of gave you a different opinion maybe about it? I mean, the JFK stuff opened me up more a little bit to 
just how the world works. And I hate to say it like that, but it made me more of a pessimist about things. And I think I'm just curious your perspective, not only from the JFK stuff, but looking into this, did you get a different perspective on your government or you understand the situation a little bit more in depth because of your experience? Yeah, uh, I certainly got a um, a clearer picture of what it was like post-war uh, than I had previously, how chaotic it was, how, um, how awful it was. Uh, just a, a very small example. When I went to Hamburg, uh, I got on a plane from my local airport, which is half an hour's drive away. I was in Hamburg in uh, less than two hours, and I was in the Curo house in the same day, um, the same afternoon. Uh, and yet to one of the trials to get the uh, the judge advocate there who advised the court, it took two days, it took two days to get there. They had to get on a train, then they get on a ship, then they had to get on another train. It was nightmare. So, you know, just uh, what I hadn't understood before is how how used we are to doing this, you know, communi communicating between Immediate the UK access. and the States. Yeah, this is easy, isn't it? They had none of this. You know, they had a phone. That, well, they only had a phone if one was connected in the courtroom, which they probably had to apply for. Um, but they certainly didn't have the kind of uh, travel possibilities that we have now. And uh, everything was done by by pass, you had to get a, a written pass to go anywhere in Germany. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. One of the prosecutors, uh, he wanted to go and talk to some of the, uh, I think it was, was that a prosecutor? No, yeah, it was a prosecutor. He wanted to go and talk to somebody in a prison. Um, and he got a pass to go into the prison. When he got there, they wouldn't let him in. Uh, and he, he managed to convince them. They were Germans, obviously. It was shortly after the war, but the Germans running the prison. Uh, he managed to convince them to let him in. Then they wouldn't let him out again. <laughs> they confused him for one of the inmates. So poor guy, he couldn't get in, he couldn't get out. Um, and all he got was this piece of paper signed by some British guy. So it was, um, I really got an appreciation of how hard it was and to get uh, supplies to people, for them to get food, uh, for people who were witnesses. So if you had a witness from Poland or Czechoslovakia or Italy to get them to Hamburg was no easy thing. You had to um, compensate them for time off work in a different currency. Uh, it was a nightmare. The whole thing was... Um, so I really got an appreciation for how enormous the administration of the whole business was. And I can see why they wanted to wind it up. And, and they did wind it up. It, they lasted um, four years, 1945 to 1949, when the British did all of their trials. Um, and the last person they tried was a guy called von Manstein, who was a field marshal, which is the most uh, senior post you can get in the army. It certainly was at that time. I think it still is. And uh, uh, the British tried him. Uh, it was the last, last one tried. And there was a lot of political upheaval about that, whether it was right to trial try a senior officer um, because the British establishment seemed to be able to put itself in the German shoes and say, well, if we'd been defeated, would we have expected our generals to be put on trial? So Patton, for instance, would you have expected him to be tried as a war criminal? Probably not. Um, or you, at least you would have seen it to be uh, unjust. And so there was a, a big question about whether we should put senior officers on trial and that was the other appreciation i came to was at the time 
there was very much an officers and gentlemen uh, ethos. So if you were an officer, you were certainly a gentleman and you couldn't possibly have committed a war crime. So, and that, that doesn't that's, exist now. Yeah, I was to say, that, that rule doesn't sound like it would uh, be too good to work out, but all right. Yeah, that was that was definitely what was thought at the time. Like you couldn't you're be an a Christian, officer unless you were a gentleman. You know, just because you're a Christian, you probably read the Bible every day and don't do anything yeah. wrong. All right, I know a lot of Christian people that do. Don't read. It was Bible. a different time. You know, it was 80 years ago. Um, 80 years ago, it's a lifetime ago in 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 terms of travel. I hate that. that uh, I hate saying in terms of. Cut that out, Robbie. <laughs> what's wrong with in terms of <laughs> no no regarding i should say regarding travel and communications um it's a lifetime away do you uh, certainly do you notice anything that lingers still today from some of the impacts of the events that obviously you were looking into i mean do you see anything historically culturally things that had significant change afterwards, even people that might've been involved in the trial that might've experienced some sort of change or some sort of different thing afterwards. I'm just, I don't know if you got too personal with some of the people that weren't necessarily being put on trial, but were actually involved in committing or just putting people into their sentences. I mean, that's still got to, has an impact, not as much as the impact of the person that's actually being affected, but. But I think the biggest impact is the development of international law. Um, so, the, the Nuremberg, the International Military Tribunal, really was the start of international law, and now it's a whole, a whole subject, um, a whole thing that gets tried in international courts, and it didn't really exist at that time, and, and it stems from the, the Hague Conventions at the, the end of the, when well, 1899 was the first Hague Convention, and those those conventions came about because some countries got together and decided, well, you know, we really must treat people who are injured or uh, captured during war times. We must treat them a little better than we have done. Because up until then, you know, if you die, if you injured on the battlefield, it was quite acceptable for your foe to come along and, and finish you off and rob everything you'd got. And then if you were defending a town, go and rob that whole town and, and do what you wanted with the population. So the um, different countries got together, including Germany and the US and Russia and the UK. Uh, they all got together and decided, well, we, we have to have some kind of convention to, to stop this. And the hate conventions were really mostly about what we would do with um, injured people on the battlefield and with prisoners of war. Did mention um, did mention civilians once or twice in that they had rights to a normal life. Um, I can't remember the exact phrases they used, but you can look it up. And there was another Hague Convention in 1909, and uh, sorry, 1906. And at the same time, there were Geneva Conventions as well, and they, they all kind of built on each other so that the conventions for prisoners of war and people who had been injured were then built upon to say, um, you know, what, what we would do with, uh, cap when I mentioned prisoners of war, what we would do with... Um, civilian populations what we would do with people who were injured what rights they'd got to go to a hospital um and, and then it all fell apart because the first world war happened and everything went out of the everything went out of the window because they didn't stick to any of that stuff you know there were conventions about using um dropping bombs from balloons there were conventions about using 
specific weapons it all went out they used gas they dropped stuff they dropped bombs on london from zeppelins it, you know all went out the window and then after the first world war it became very difficult to get any of the countries together who were likely to be belligerents again to get them together to to make these conventions anymore and, and mostly what we know of the geneva convention the one we call it the Geneva Convention. There's four conventions, but the Geneva Convention uh, that we most rely upon is 1949, which is after the Second World War. So that between the wars, not much got agreed in um, in how we would conduct wars and, and what was a war crime. Um, because you, you have to think we had uh, the Russian Revolution, so we suddenly had the Soviets who, who didn't want to agree with anything and didn't want to sign anything. And then we had the Nazi party uh, come to power end of the end of the 20s, early 30s. They they weren't going to agree to any of that stuff either. So uh, nothing got signed. Um, so the major the major thing that's that's come out of it is international law. And now now we can try uh, war criminals if we capture them. Um, so if we capture Putin, Putin, I guess we could try him in The Hague. Um, and that might ruffle a few Russian feathers. Well, Russell, you've given me enough of your time, man. I really appreciate you giving uh, me the – honestly, give me the time and the education on some of this stuff too. Like I said, I mean, as much as you said that people might not know about this and might not know about that, that's me. I didn't know about a lot of these things that you mentioned, and I'm surprised that we don't know more about some of it. Um, but I get it because, like I said, it's that gray area. Uh, but I'm happy that someone like yourself is interested in the subject and diving through the research. And I'm excited for your next book to come out. But is there a place where people can find any of your links? And then I'll make sure when I post this episode, I'll go back and link your book when it comes out in a year. Do you know, I um, I have a Facebook site. It's Russell Kent author. Um, but that's the only, only thing I have at the moment. Well, I'll link your site and I'll link any other links I find, like Amazon links or stuff like that to some of your books. Um or JFK thanks, medical portrayal. But thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.